0: absolutely how's mexico city it's a trip man it's it's been really crazy to live in another country i think after i think it's always a trip to live in another country but i think especially given like i'm not on vacation here i've been working from home and just trying to like lead like a <laughs> a normal life abroad which i've i don't think i've really ever done where i've had a remote job but it definitely makes me feel that i've been in many different ways overdosed on the aesthetic of america and it's like a detox is underway yeah but it's like one of those things like you don't even know what you're detoxing from aside from like what you've seen on tv or the news until you leave and you start to kind of feel like <laughs> i guess at least in my case like a sense of of peace And not to say that, you know, I obviously know Mexico has its own problems as does every country, but I didn't realize how much was kind of weighing on my mind and like how much of the, uh, the psychogeography of America was like affecting me and as it affects all of us. And I'd say like Mexico city, You know, I've lived here in the past, About during the last recession, i had stayed here for like a month and I was collecting unemployment, but that was just such a different existence because I was just like this flaneur that had like nothing to do, but, you know, walk around and explore. And now it's so different. And I've really kind of taken to the city in like this different way. And I don't know if you've ever been here before.
1: I never have actually. I've been to Yucatan, but never Mexico City.
0: Yeah, so Mexico City is interesting because it's like it's super verdant. There's tons of trees. There's tons of plants, and after a while, it kind of feels like you're in a corridor, and you're just like walking in this like endless network of tunnels and vaults. And it's really it starts to get mixed with the smells and the steam that come from all the street vendors, and the architecture is it's both colonial and Romanesque. So it feels like you're in several different historical times and they're like, and then on top of that, it feels like there's like a superimposition of several different European cities. So it has this very like enchanted and romantic feel that it's, it's pretty heady, especially if you're someone that like can't sleep walking around at night and what feels like a tunnel. So there's, there's no horizon. So it's, it's been an intensely trippy. Wow.
1: It's geographically kind of anomalous too, right? It's like in a volcano or it's not, there's something about the actual situation of it. that's pretty strange.
0: Well, it's, I think it's like one of the highest elevated cities in the world. It's definitely higher than Denver or anywhere else in the United States. And that's something that like, I also felt right away that really charged the landscape in this strange way because you know you really have to adjust to it like you can walk up to release for myself like i walk i could walk up like two flights of stairs when i first got here and be just cooked and i would feel it at night like my heart would race and it took some time to adjust like i you you forget how like intense it is to be at like this kind of a, an elevation but Today on the show we have on Rosecrans Baldwin who wrote a book about Los Angeles and a lot of the conversation that we'll be having is around psychogeography. But I wonder, like for you personally, have you ever explored the psychogeography of a city or landscape where you found like the most intense energy?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you know something that made me think a moment ago: this feeling that when you leave the place where you were and go somewhere new you can never predict how different you'll feel because you start to lose track of speaking of like how you feel in any place, you lose track of like how much is always the case with you. How much is like, you know, yourself right, that right. versus how much is the effect of the place. And the answer is probably almost always that the effect of the place is more than you think it's going to be. Totally. And yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think of all places as haunted in some way, you know, and haunted doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like, I don't mean that it's, you know, I mean, there is trauma and and murder and death in, in every place, certainly. But like, it doesn't only have to be that. It's also the sense that like every place has a spirit, but that spirit often expresses itself through people, including you. So when you go to a new place, you become a vector for the spirit of that place.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like
1: that. You know, I, I tend to always think of when I'm both traveling and writing and trying to like imagine what I'm trying to do in a certain story and book and how those different stories and books might relate to each other. I always want to have like a superimposed geography, you know, so I think I've never been that interested in outright fantasy or, you know, like middle earth or something that takes place in a totally other realm mm-hmm. or deep space sci-fi of like stuff that takes place in other planets, you know, it's fine, but it has never spoken to me that deeply. Whereas the thing that really does speak to me deeply is something like Bruno Schultz's Street of Crocodiles or, um, you know, Gerald Murnane's books, this Australian guy that we've talked about, you know, and people who like are writing about Earth in a very recognizable way and often actually about places that they're intimately familiar with, you know, or John Waters' Baltimore or something like that, but that they have a totally different view of. And you feel that they're sourcing something from it rather than adding something to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like they've synthesized some sort of energy that is both kind of flowing through them, but also out of them into the landscape.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people who find the right place to be so that they can be a vector of that specific energy are extremely interesting to me. Like I love this Canadian director, Guy Madden, who made Mm -hmm. a film called My Winnipeg, which is kind of a, it really is a kind of documentary about Winnipeg but though, like my in the title, you know, the way that it's like his like very specific relation to the city of Winnipeg, I find just like incredibly poignant and interesting. And to me, that's like a model of everything I've tried to do in some sense is like thinking of my mind as a town, you know, which is kind of my hometown in, in Massachusetts, kind of this little town in Italy where I've spent a lot of time and kind of a composite of, you know, movie sets and like other towns that I've seen. But I tend to think that both thoughts have a geography in your own head and geography in terms of like going to other places has the kind of thought, you know, that there are thoughts that you're waiting to have in Mexico city, let's say, or in Los Angeles that are not the thoughts that you would have if you didn't go there.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. I mean, I think that's a, obviously a big reason, I think maybe an inchoate reason for why a lot of people travel, but I wonder if, do you have like a specific place that maybe doesn't exist that you're trying to recreate by tapping into this energy.
1: Like, I, if I close my eyes right now, I can picture, you know, like a cobbled street going up a hill and like a metal grate that looks over a harbor. Then maybe it's in Lisbon, maybe it's somewhere in southern Spain. You know, it's like I can sort of guess where it might be. Maybe it's in Istanbul, but I'm not sure that it's a real place. You know, and, and I think like the idea also of being in one city and dreaming of another is super crucial, right? So like I spent a lot of time in Sydney and when I was in Sydney, I became obsessed with Murakami. So like being in Sydney, I was like endlessly dreaming of Tokyo (laughs) and not not in the sense that I like wished I wasn't in Sydney, but it was like my experience of Sydney was a Tokyo experience of Sydney. And then when I went to Tokyo, I became obsessed with Raymond Chandler. So then I was endlessly dreaming of LA from the point of view of Tokyo. And I think there's something actually very natural about that, even though it can be frustrating and cause this like ache in a way.
0: No, that's totally interesting. I mean, just having done this interview with Rosecrans while being here has definitely put my head back into the mode of thinking about LA. And can you remember the first time you'd gone to LA? Like, What was your take on trying to experience the psychogeography of that specific city that already is so layered and condensed with so much ephemera and imagination and books and movies and and dialogue and expectation and lack of expectation. It already is this enchanted place, but obviously when you get there, it's a very different story. Can you like recall that?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the first time I went was in ninth grade. Uh, I took like a family trip, you know, up the California coast and we kind of visited friends in different parts. So we started in LA And, you know, rented a car and saw various people. But my most vivid memory from that trip is we were trying to leave the city to go to Santa Barbara, which was going to be the next stop, you know, and and we got totally lost in like endless highways as, as one does. And we pulled over and I can remember this super vividly and my father and I got out of the car and walked to the, you know, into the little station of the gas station and asked the guy how to get to Santa Barbara and he came out and he was wearing like one of those full body mechanic suits, you know, that there's like blue jumpsuits with his name, mm-hmm. and like, you know, in red thread over his pocket. And he was trying to explain to us. I and mean, it was just like, you know, I was 15 or so, so it was impossible for me to understand what he was saying in terms of like how you would actually do that drive. But I can vividly picture the way he tried to explain how to get through the snarl of highways that you would need to get out of town. He's like, oh, you got to go, you know, make a right on here and like verge over onto the, you know, 405 and make a right and get off this exit and, you know, cut across the 122. You know, he went on and on and on for like 10 minutes of different things that we would have to do. And then at a certain point, his eyes just totally lit up. He's like, and then you'll hit the coast and it's all the way on to Santa Barbara.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That really, it really fits the tone of like when you get there and you have that moment of it being like what you expect it to be. And and somebody also like kind of playing into the fantasy of it is is really like a heady experience.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's like, did we summon him? You know, would he have spoken differently to someone who more clearly knew their way around? Right, almost, right. Um, almost certainly, right? So Probably, that, yeah. You know, he became... It was like David Lynch said this at some point when he's like, I'd love to live other places. And like, I have lived other places, but I basically like mostly live in LA because I have to typecast. Like I have to fill my films with people who look exactly the way I want them to look. And LA is the only city in the world where anytime you see someone who looks interesting, if, if you go over to them and say, are you an actor? They say yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of reminds me of the first time I'd gone to LA, which is much later in life. It was in my... I believe I was in my mid twenties, maybe late twenties. And it was that same year where uh, pot became legal. And at the time it seemed like a big deal. Like it was like, Oh my God, marijuana is legal. I remember we got there and I bought, or I think somebody gave me this like massive pot cookie and I'd taken pot edible or whatever edibles in the past, but I wasn't really like versed or, or experienced in, and, how like powerful and, uh, alienating of an experience that can be. And I remember just being like, well, it's a cookie. I'll eat the whole thing. And it was massive. It was like the size of like, like a paper plate or something. It was definitely <laughs> big. And I remember I got like a haircut and we were in Beverly Hills and we went to the, I believe it was the peninsula hotel. And that fucking thing started to kick in and we were sitting on the, uh, on the roof and there was a, it was a super hot day, but for whatever reason, they still had the fire going. So I was kind of like looking, you know, sitting by the fire, looking at all the people through the flames. And I swear to God, this wasn't like me being like stoned, but everybody was talking about space or the horoscope or tarot. And like, I was just kind of like, at first I was really amused by it. And then I was like, oh my God, I feel like really, like really alienated and really strange. And like, I remember when I went to the bathroom, it had a heated, um, the toilet seat was heated. And for some reason, like that also bugged me out. And I remember telling my girlfriend, I was like, we need to get out of here. Like, I I don't, I'm like beginning to bug out. Like I do not feel well. And, um, we go downstairs. I'm like, totally like, it's getting like, stronger and stronger. And um, I'm like, I, you gotta get the car. Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna go stand outside. And I'm standing outside and this like massive SUV pulls up and this guy gets out with a cowboy hat and he kind of looks like a Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. And mm-hmm. it looks like that, like big guy, cowboy hat, has a suit on and he gets out of the car and he starts waving as though he's like waving to a crowd of people. And I'm just standing there like, you know, shivering, (laughs) essentially, and I turn around, catch a glimpse of like who he's waving at. And I'm the only person there. It's just me and him. And he's like waving at me as though it's like he's waving at a crowd of people. And I was just like, oh, my God, get me the fuck out of here. And I remember after that, just uh, we had rented a convertible, which also seemed like this like great idea, like right around, you know, Malibu and, and Venice Beach and Beverly Hills in a, in a convertible. But I felt so exposed and so like seen, you know what I mean? <laughs> so We're just like driving around and I'm, like so like deeply uncomfortable, but also experiencing LA for the first time and and seeing the city almost exactly the way I had seen it in films, or not maybe not the same way I'd seen it in films, but seeing it through the same like surrealist lens where I'm like, everything looked like a wax museum. Everything just felt like so strange and surreal. And I just wanted to like land at some point, you know, I was like, oh my God, make this like feeling go away. And I believe we like ended that night, like at the whiskey, a go-go or something where I kind of drank it off. But um, it was like a really super solid first LA experience <laughs> and it equally as terrifying.
1: <laughs> Sounds like a scene from uh, Nicholas Vending Reffin's new TV show "The too old to die young.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: It was totally like that. He captures it, you know, and drive too. I mean,
0: yeah. yeah yeah no I, th- I think in general for some reason, I think Europeans tend to capture LA the best. like all my favorite mm-hmm. movies about LA, not all of them, but I'd say a majority of them tend to be directed by Europeans. Yeah I mean
1: Hitchcock, uh, you know Billy Wilder, right I mean a, a lot of the like classic images about L.A. Raymond Chandler, right? It was British. We touched on this in the interview a little bit, but this idea that you know if you think of the idea of Noir, you know, even the word itself obviously means like black or darkness, right? So like most classic noir, whether it's Paris or New York or, you know, almost any other city, even San Francisco plays on the sense of the thing that's scary is that you can't see what's going on, right? That it's dark and it's, you know, you're in an alley and and you can't tell like, yeah, what's yeah. behind the door or whatever. There's, there's things happening
0: in the shadows.
1: Yeah, shadow, literally shadows, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas LA, you know, and Polanski is another great example with Chinatown of a European making like a totally. definitive LA noir, you know, and the idea mm-hmm. is that in LA, like the story you told, it's kind of the opposite problem, right? It's not that it's dark. It's that it's so bright. Yeah. You know, you're almost blinded. And like, you can see everything clearly, but it doesn't help, or it almost makes it worse, right? It's like the thing behind the dumpster in the Holland drive. It's like, you can right, see what it right. is, but it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's not in it's dark. dark.
0: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like the, the light is almost like it's like a surgical light it just like totally exposes anything that's there and i think even it having the um added layer of being the home of pornography adds another like kind of clinical layer to even like this pervasive feeling of sexuality that's there you know like people are very flirty they're very kind of open with their bodies and you know at least when i was there i met so many people that were in porn which at the time was like mind-blowing but it just adds to that feeling that you're just like exposed you know that you're dealing with some sort of landscape that's very raw and and the city itself is literally
1: exposed right it's sort of like clinging you know to a fault line on the edge of the desert you know against (laughs) the ocean yeah (laughs) It's it's the opposite of you know like an Italian city being deeply cloistered and having all these walls and all these secrets and catacombs or, you know,
0: the feeling you'd get in, in Paris like, or, or Mexico, Mexico city. Yeah. It's totally the opposite.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's like, for that reason, the apex of, of American urbanism, you know, which is why it's so interesting, right. A place like New York to me is more comfortable to live in many ways, maybe because I'm, you know, an East coast and therefore in some way like old world person in some regard, but LA is, Unquestionably more interesting, right? Like, there's almost no iconic New York media at this point, almost to the point where it would be kind of a joke, right? If you wrote like a song about, you know, the spirit of New York right
0: now, it would seem like a satire. <laughs> yeah, I think Beyonce put the nail in that coffin.
1: Yeah, whereas LA, if you, you know, we talk about this in the interview also, but I think it does feel like a laboratory for some kind of near future of America. You know, it's a place that's interesting as a subject in a way that New York has kind of finished as a subject, I think.
0: I totally agree. And I think we should also introduce Rosecrans Baldwin, who's today's guest. He is the best-selling author of Everything Now, Lessons from the City State of Los Angeles, which is a new understanding of the United States' most confounding metropolis, not just a great city but a full-blown modern city-state, which is a topic we get into. Los Angeles is not just a place where the American dream hits the Pacific. It has its own dreams, not just a vanishing point of America's Western drive. It has its own compass, functionally, aesthetically, mythologically, and even technologically, an independent territory defined less by distinct borders than by an aura of autonomy and a sense of unfurling destiny. This is the city of Los Angeles that David and I are talking about, but also we dig a little bit deeper into all of these topics with Rose Cransman. And I think, uh, I think we might've been a little bit too weird for him at times, but I think we really open up the conversation and our interpretation of the book in some, at least in my opinion, interesting ways.
1: Absolutely. No, and I think it was a good push and pull and also expanded more generally into this idea of city-states, which kind of relates back to Europe. You know, if you think of the old like, medieval city-states of, you know, Genoa or, or um, Venice or something like that. And then, you know, in the 20th century after these world wars, we had nation-states. And now, you know, who knows, but it does seem like a compelling idea that we might be moving back towards city-states or at least towards, you know, zones of local autonomy that are like less and less networked into the countries that they're a part of. You know, and I think the interesting question is like, what is potentially scary about that? And what is potentially good about that? Like maybe actually having more geographical diversity off of the internet, you know, and like places being more genuinely distinct from each other. I mean, I can see a lot of positives in that too. And having a kind of like internet imposed monoculture is, is not necessarily a good thing.
0: Absolutely. And let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Rosecrans Baldwin. We recently did an interview with Matthew Spector where we talked a lot about LA and David and I just in general, for some reason, always seem to want to investigate LA as an idea or as an atmosphere. And it always seems like a good time to talk about it or to read a book about it. And in that same way, I would never, and David mentioned this before we started talking, but like, I would never want to pick up a book about New York city right now. Like there's no questions about it. There's nothing interesting that points to something bigger about us or America. Is somebody not from LA, did you have this same kind of compulsion to want to start writing about this city?
2: I think, I mean, the interesting thing is there's often a corollary that's thrown on the table again, so to speak between LA and New York. And it's funny is that i have never thought of the two that way. I think a lot of people in Los Angeles don't see it that way. A lot of people in Los Angeles that I've spoken to, you know, because I for this book, I interviewed um, easily dozens of people, if not over a hundred. And oddly, it was only people who were back on the East coast who would invoke the comparison between LA and New York. Uh, I mean, for my part, New York, I get to visit um, probably two to three times a year because partly for business and partly because my family lives outside of the city. I grew up for the most part in Connecticut in the suburbs outside of New York, and my, uh, I have some family still there, so I'll go see them. But New York, it's tough, man. As someone who lived there for a decent amount of time, both in Manhattan and Brooklyn, to see these days Soho as a shopping mall, and so much of the city is an elaborate food court that services the people that are going to shop in Soho. And then the commodification of so much of Brooklyn and Queens and Long Island. I mean, I still haven't been back to Williamsburg. So we lived on Bedford and between 5th and 6th uh, around the turn of the century. And I have I deliberately not gone back because oh I God. just keep wanting to be even more shocked because we used to live above a paint shop that would mix paint for artists in the neighborhood and by the time we left that apartment it had become a uh, luxury clothing store for infants um importing you know french cashmere for your your onesies uh the onesies that you need for your babies for in- infants of all, ages. <laughs> yeah, <even laughs> of all ages you know like like by that time like koki's is closed i don't know if you guys have this, there was, a,
0: there was a bar called Coke oh, yeah. get coke, coke um, yeah
2: i mean they weren't shy about it like nope. you know
0: it was like Windows service.
2: Yeah, it was fucked up. I mean, I'm not, and I've—that's something I've never gone near. I was, but I, but you could get beers there too, and um, and that was sort of the thing. They also had like a business card, which is funny. Um, and I think it used to be a Puerto Rican social club before that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I've, I've, I've heard that there's like an Apple store or a Whole Foods in Williamsburg. I just, I'm waiting. I'm like pushing out to have the that biggest shock that I can
0: get. Oh, you know what? You, you should definitely at some point come back and get the shock. And one of the weirdest things about Bedford now is that there is this Whole Food. And when you go to the Whole Foods, everybody that's in there is a what is that what is it called this Instacart shopper? Like the people that do the shopping for you. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So there's nobody wow. from the neighborhood in the store. It's just people <laughs> on their phones buying food for other people. So there's just this very weird mechanical like wax museum automaton vibe to it that's very eerie and strange.
2: Let's throw me out the back door because I've written a whole book saying that L.A. represents sort of, you know, in many ways where America might be going next. But that to me sounds like a where America is going next. So cancel my book. Let's do a new one about Williamsburg. I don't know of a good title, but that's a horrifying proposition. Um <laughs> <laughs> I remember taking a French art director. So I did. I lived in France for a little bit. I worked for a French advertising agency, and I remember taking my art director. We were doing a um, a service sort of shoot in, on the West Coast, and we were up in San Francisco. And I took him into his first Whole Foods, and he was blown away by it. This was like two thousand seven. Like, and he's you know in Paris. You go into the small like, apicery, the small, you know, sort of produce markets, and there's the guy who comes out, the owner or the owner's husband or wife, and they help you select your vegetables because you want this asparagus, you want these oranges. And he was, you know, blown away. He was thinking that only in Whole Foods do people treat the produce so reverently. And I was like, man, you got you got some things to learn. Uh, I've taken us totally off track here. I have not answered your question. I'm sorry about that. Um, So I'm going to double back really fast before I ruin this entire interview and just say, I came here with no uh, desire, I mean innate desire or whatever uh, to write about Los Angeles, but, was confounded by it really fast, and just started keeping a diary, like literally for my own sake, not thinking that there was a, you know, a a book or a manuscript or even a story down the road. It was that so many things were happening all at once. And there's also, I don't know if you guys feel this, but there's something about landing in a new place that really pricks your senses you're just your your antennae are up and things seem a little bit sharper right you know you don't really quite know the lay of the land and so details pop in a way they don't once you've gotten used to a place and so at least this is how it happens for me um and so i just i was hearing things and seeing things and feeling things and i just felt really compelled to start keeping track of that and that yes eventually did become this book
1: I love what you said to to take us briefly back to Paris again, but you had this great um, Italo Calvino quote in the book about this idea that, you know, Paris at some point could become an inner landscape or like a site for imaginative production. And I feel like LA has that quality now too, or there's something about it that is worth imagining or almost that has to be imagined even while you're there, you know, or it feels like psychologically productive in a way that New York also doesn't to the same degree.
2: I think I I don't know about the New York comparison only because I haven't spent enough time in New York lately, but I will tell you, but I, in terms of LA, I I would completely agree. The nice thing about Los Angeles is that there are 10 billion versions of it. Um, There are so many sides to LA, so many neighborhoods, so many communities, so many varieties of people and their ways of going about things. And it doesn't take much to meet them and see them and, and talk to them. I mean, LA is a city that lives on the surface of things. Uh, that's, not, that's not a criticism. That's not to say that there aren't depths of experience. Of course there are here. It is more that, I think I talk in the book at one point when I got involved in this self-help group that um, had some darker sides to it, that someone made a comment in a group I was in that people in LA can often be similar to their cars, right? We are a car culture. <laughs> uh, and cars, uh, you know, the, the the exterior surfaces can be quite shiny and attractive, and they're also very thin and easy to ding and, and to nick. And it's not unusual to see someone in Los Angeles, you know, driving. Uh, A car that 10 years ago cost maybe $100,000 and these days is dusty and dirty and, you know, falling apart. And it's often symbolic of where they're at. But the point that this person was making is that in L.A., it's uh, people not only wear their hearts on their sleeve, but often where they're at generally, right, can often be pretty transparent. And so whether it is our propensity to be prey to natural natural disasters, whether it is someone wanting to flaunt how well they're doing financially, or hey, look at my hot boyfriend, you know, in his skimpy tea, or you can also see ruin on people, you can see hope, you can see despair, we obviously have America's worst homelessness problem, which is also a problem having to do with housing and drug addiction and uh, mental illness. These are things that really live on the, on the surface of the street. And even if you are one of the Kardashians and you're able to be ferried from private jet to private home in a private Land Rover um, note to self, they're not the best Land Rovers. (laughs) Uh, In any case, you know, like even, even then you can't be too blindfolded to it. So when it comes to being able to imagine what this uh city might be like for different people uh, and we live amidst the dream factory of hollywood which is you know that's kind of its job Uh, we get to both see what people are going through and we get to think about what it might be like to be them and at the same time we're having our own existence that is up and down and precarious And there's a sinkhole down the street or there's a million dollar check waiting around the corner I think there's a line in the book at some point. Um, this is, I feel the idea that I'm right about to quote myself feels a little bit like Kanye listening to Kanye. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the idea that like life here can sometimes feel like it's either awful, awful, or it is wildly um, full of potential. Like those two things can, can live in uh, Angelino at the same time. And it's not just about the Dodgers, right? It's about your own, your own fate. Um, and the sense that you're kind of quivering on the line the whole time. Is exciting and also kind of just awful. But I love it. I love it. Um, I, that's, I think that's one of the reasons I really do feel at home here, having no good reason to feel at home here.
1: Well, it's like there's no stasis, right? It's a constant sense of precarity, either in terms of you know plummeting or literal earthquakes and fires and destruction, or the possibility of rapture, right? Or like radical improvement. It seems like there's no way to be there and just be living the same day over and over again, even if ironically that is the state that many people can fall into. It's, it's never like <laughs> yeah. the mental drive that, that puts people into that state.
2: <laughs> yeah, ironically, it's like, because that's I think what a cliche Knox against Los Angeles would tell you, that every day is the same. The weather never changes. It is 72 degrees and sunny, and occasionally it's gray you know, in May and June, and occasionally it's hotter in September and October. Um, but you can live in your sort of enclave of LA, whether that's East LA or whether that's Bel Air or whether that's down in Lakewood and you can just sort of hold up, right? And I think that's true. I mean, that's certainly what people do. This is like, we are the suburban city and that's okay, right? Like, it's just, again, this is the one thing that I've struggled with with this book is something that people told me as soon as I started writing it. it was like, dude, like, watch out. There is no single story about Los Angeles. Los Angeles is way too big for you to start pinning, you know, one narrative to it. And I never set out to do that. But that was like, immediately when, uh, when people heard about what sort of I wanted to do with this book, people I was interviewing, they were like, listen, Los Angeles resists that approach and be careful. And I, and I heard that very clearly. because I was already like, you know, anxious and nervous enough about what I was trying to write. Um, and I, and I never set out to do that, but it was definitely, you know, something to be worried about just because again, it's too big, it's too diverse. It is, you know, far more like you guys were saying of a climate than it is a city, right? There's just a sense that it kind of, whether you're here, or whether you're outside of it, it just sort of exists like a gas. That's not the most polite way of saying it, but no, no, know.
0: I, I think it in some way does speak to this really ethereal nature to this psychogeography, Of Los Angeles, which always, especially when I'm not there and I think about the time that I've spent there, seems to be like possessed by this really unique spirit. And there's something really destructive and somewhat dark about it in the sense that it it always feels like California in general is like almost self destroying itself, whether it be through fires and earthquakes or it be how streaming and social media and TikTok is destroying cinema, yet those people are still coming to Los Angeles to live. And it's always, I don't know, it, it almost feels like it's erasing its history while starting its own imagined future and it exists in this like really gaseous <laughs> strange like pastiche of a landscape and so i don't know if there's like a, a total question in there but i'm curious to know if like <laughs> you've been have you been taken by this like psychogeography that exists in los angeles this kind of malevolent strange force that we're hinting at
2: sure 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 i i Listen, I, I dig the voodoo out here, you know, like you're talking to someone who has drank the Kool-Aid and is, you know, swimming downstream with it. Like, I don't, I don't I'm not fighting it. Uh, and I am about the 5000th person to write about it. You know, the Gothic L.A. is the oeuvre of Mike Davis, uh, whether it's City of Quartz or Ecology of Fear or, you know, his Upteenth books. It's also where Octavia Butler was coming from when she's talking about you know, sort of the imaginary LA of the future in Parable of the Sower. It's Lynelle George uh, writing about it in the After Image and seeing the city that she grew up in being torn down and replaced. And she's watching landmarks she counted on to know uh, disappear before her eyes. It's you know, there's a point in the book where I went down to a series called uh, porch poetry which was a young uh, trans woman uh, trying to fight an eviction notice by staging these poetry evenings on her front porch uh, to raise some money. And there were all these young black Latina and Latino people from, you know, South Central, um, which was, you know, the land that is sort of now being tried. Real estate developers would tell you it's Southern Los Angeles, you know, basically they'll say whatever it takes to get you away from thinking of black people and to think about white people, you know, to put right. it very bluntly. Um, and that's neighborhoods like Englewood and Lemert Park and young people at that poetry reading and others, you know, that they've done and they recently started restaging them, uh, talking about what it's like to see your neighborhood, you know, sort of be stolen from you when you didn't realize that it was even something that could be stolen. You know, I think I say this in the book, but Paul Beatty writes about this quite a bit. Um, you know, he's from LA, uh, I think now resides in New York City, but there's just this remarkable way that people steal in Los Angeles, brazenly, lots of things yeah. are done brazenly in Los Angeles, uh, in ways that perhaps a more, uh, quote unquote, polite society, <laughs> you know, in the sort of like the crusty, Yankee, Waspy, or Southern Let's keep our, you know, racist bona fides uh, behind our backs and speak politely of one another in, in a polite society. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can go into that a little bit longer. But the point is, out here, it sometimes feels like people can be pretty blunt about their greed and about uh, power. Um, and it can be uh, pretty transparent sometimes.
0: I, I love that you mentioned that because I think when you're in LA, you're exposed, especially if you're not from there, like your back is against the wall because everybody knows why you're there. You know what I mean? Like nobody just goes there for nothing. You have to have a reason to be there. So there is this like almost cutthroat nature to existence there. You know, if, if you're not making it, then, I feel like it's like a very specific depression than like not making it in another city in America. It's like you didn't get to become part of the zeitgeist or something like that. I mean, I guess I'm maybe specifically thinking about the movie industry, but I also think like the time that I've spent there as somebody that was not involved in the movie industry either and feeling this like really specific sense of being um, unmoored and floating without any kind of direction and, and just thinking like, shit, I am fucking dead meat. If I don't get any kind of like momentum going in this specific place.
1: And in a way it's like, there's squirrely exposure, you know, the kind of terror of being exposed for that. And it's like the only salvation, at least in the popular imagination is commercialized exposure, right. Or is being exposed in a way that, you imagine benefits you through, you know, the image factory and the, the culture factory, right? And it is something about yeah. like sunlit Gothic, you know, the way you were saying that everything is brazen and happens in the open. It does have this quality of, if I picture LA Gothic, I picture sunbaked streets and or, or somebody like in a room with the curtains drawn against like the noontime sign
2: as, of, as opposed to like
1: Southern Gothic, which is like dark cemeteries and attics and, you know, people buried out back in that like much darker world of, you know, Faulkner or whatever else.
2: Yeah. There's a point I make in the book, which I don't think really rings true for a lot of people, but it, it's, it's rang true for me. Well, there's two things. One person um, asked me at a reading, they're like, why did you include so much scripture? Like why many, so many quotations from the Bible? Um, and at no point do I explain it. So it's a totally valid question. I don't think this person was a big fan of scripture or the Bible. Uh, and, you know, as someone, frankly, who's basically an atheist, it's not like I'm, you know, looking to sort of convert people to Christianity, but you come here in LA is a very Christian place. Now, granted, it's also a very Jewish place. It's a very Muslim place. It's, you know, it, 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 it holds all types, but there are also massive white crosses on many of our mountains that you're sort of like, when did that get erected? And how does that stay there? And so there's a sense often that Los Angeles doesn't know you're here, right? There's something about going to New York as, and I, okay, fine. So I'm the person who's going to compare New York and Los Angeles. Fuck it. I'll just do it anyway. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> there's something <brilliant>. about, <laughs> there in, something, <laughs> in my personal experience, when I was growing up, Uh, going to New York because I wanted to be a writer from an early age. It felt like New York was the place that one goes to become a writer, right? And gosh, if I could give advice to anyone out there who wants to become a writer, like it would be the last place I would tell you to go because it's just so effing competitive for all the wrong reasons and all the, you know, all the gossip parties and the talk, whether it's like, I don't know, choose your generation. It could be Paris Review. It could be N plus one. It could be You know, if I hear another fucking person in New York media mention dime square right now, I'm gonna vomit. But you see what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, each generation has its watering holes, and those watering holes are places where you gather to compare how much money you didn't make compared to someone who did, and the contracts that they got and the opportunities that they got. And that's really for me so often what New York media and publishing is all about, if you're on the writing side of things, not on the business side of things. And whereas I've been lived in so many places where the writing community is very supportive and wonderful and just as well-read and, and talented, they just aren't looking to stab each other, whether that's Chapel Hill in North Carolina or frankly Paris, France, or now Los Angeles, uh, and talking to people other places. Again, so here's a sidebar, kids don't move to New York. But um, in New York growing up, I always saw that as the place that I needed to come up through. Um, and Coming out to Los Angeles now, and obviously, Los Angeles is a place to come up through, especially if you're looking to screenwrite. Uh, and that's what people understand writers to be out here. There's a wonderful niche that you can sort of like hide in when you're someone out here who's primarily a nonfiction writer or a novelist or a short story writer. I mean, at this point, it's a small community and there's only so many bookshops. So you sort of, you know, you can sort of run into each other. Um, coming up in New York, there was a sense though even if it wasn't necessarily a wonderful place to be a young aspiring writer. There was a sense, though, that lots of other people were young aspiring writers and had been young aspiring writers at different periods of time and that there was a tradition. In other words, what I mean is that there was a sense that the dream knew you were there, that there was a place for you, that you had a spot, even if it was in the dark, in the corner, and no one you know, from the important places knew your name that you were still participating in something, even if you weren't, you were getting a rotten deal. And then you come out to Los Angeles and there is a sense, at least on my part, that Los Angeles has no fucking idea who you are and doesn't care that you're here. And there's no collective dream or destiny to play a part in. Yes, you know, if you're a an actress or an actor um, trying to make it into the into show business, possibly, you know, or a director or whatever. And yes, there are communities that have nothing to do with Hollywood. You come out here, whether as an athlete or you are looking to get involved in the space industry or, you know, the mid-century uh, industry of uh, auto parts that was existing in Los Angeles, whatever. There's lots of collective destinies, but I don't think that LA is so constant. Concentrated so that you can feel part of the concentration. You know, it's like, and this is again my experience and just from the people that I interviewed, but there is a sense here that at some point, if you slip through the cracks, it could be very easy for that to go unnoticed. And that's what makes it feel risky and dangerous and scary sometimes. Um, at the same time, like I have never felt so much community as I've, as I've developed, my wife and I have developed in LA as in other places. So there may be two sides to a coin here.
1: It made me think for a second of the difference between, at least for most kids, middle school and high school, like the way you were describing New York, you know, middle school for most kids, I think is just like a rigid hierarchy because there's no differentiation in terms of like different ways of being cool. So it's just like a totem pole of like the few, like cool and attractive people at the top and like everyone else is like miserably below them. And like, that's the New York writing thing. Whereas high school, you know, hopefully people branch out and you have like the goth kids and the drug kids and the theater kids and the, and the athletes, and they're not competing against each other in as like vertical a sense. <laughs> and for most people, that's better.
2: I think that's a very good comparison. And I think it's also easy in certain industries, but let's just take the art industry and specifically the publishing industry and perhaps the media industry, it, it can be easy to agree with everyone that there's only so many ladders, you know? And for writers, it can often be sort of just assumed that one needs to go to an MFA program or now to get a PhD uh, in creative writing. I don't have either, I don't have any degrees beyond a bachelor degree, but it can be assumed that you need to be published in certain places or know certain people, right? Um, and there's such small, narrow, codified, anti-artistic, um, ways of looking about something that has much more to do with business than it has to do with art, you know? I remember teaching at Duke and the University of North Carolina and trying to help my students understand the difference between writing and publishing because it was often fused together in their minds. Um, and when you start to separate the dollars and cents of publishing from the act of you, pen and paper, or computer, whatever, try to get some idea out, some sense of yourself, Fused through this intellectual and creative exercise we call writing that figures out you know where you're coming from, who your people are, and how you feel about them. You know that's very different, right, from getting some shit um, into print. Uh, but it's not always distinguished that way by the mass culture.
0: You had mentioned before that it does resist sweeping and generalized narratives. I think your book is just very evident in that, as well as the fact that it also seems to. I always feel like it fosters this really intense sense of isolation that constantly forces your psyche to like bloom out. And I wonder if that's why there's so many writers that live there, or if you think it's something that's like purely dependent on the film and TV industry.
2: I think a lot of writers live here because there's money. So that, and that's, film that's television there's a huge amount of advertising there's a decent amount of journalism Uh, and again there are lots of people who are already living here and became writers Uh, it's not necessarily a destination outside of hollywood as a place to come to be a writer though advertising does bring a lot of people here and there's uh, certainly copywriting for tech industries and granted you know like it seems like one out of every three people in la is a lawyer we're lawyers but writers you know not very good ones but you know what i
0: mean like right um, right They have to like shape the ethereal into a narrative.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. But they can like buy better wine. Like that's like, I can't (laughs) tell you, like how many lawyers have, has anyone ever met? Who's like, dude, I need someone to drink this wine with because I don't want to just drink wine with lawyers. Um, I think that's kind of the role of writers and authors is to help lawyers drink good wine.
0: Um, <laughs> Get me into those circles, please. <laughs> but that's what I was doing in Texas all weekend. My
1: wife's a lawyer and her friends are lawyers. so It was a lawyer party in Texas where I, I was the writer on hit.
2: <laughs> and how was the wine? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. <laughs> See? There we go. <laughs> uh, but I, I think I think there is, uh, and there's certainly a magnetism to the place, Los Angeles, as there is for countless other uh, occupations. Um, I don't mean to say that LA is all surface, but on the surface, it's pretty good, right? The climate is good. There are still opportunities here. Uh, the housing is not the nightmare that is San Francisco or New York City. Granted, it's also not austin nashville um you know um choose other places right now that people are moving to in order to sort of try to have affordable creative lives but it it is um it's an open space there is a sense here um when you arrive here that there may be some there there is room for potential there is room for you i still think that's true and i think it's true for varieties of It's not just someone who has an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree and has, you know, artistic leanings. I think there is still room here for lots of people. Um, and there's a sense, this was something that I think it was Kit Rackless told me, who is the former editor in chief of LA Weekly and Los Angeles Magazine, um, talking about how there's a sense here that you can, that things can be changed. Um, things can evolve, uh, in ways that happen faster and are more open to a variety of people to do the changing than certain cities in the United States that are more entrenched in sort of the mortar of Americana, whether that's New York City or Boston, or Philadelphia or Chicago, or perhaps even um, places in the South and deep South and then extending down into Miami. But there's a sense here still that LA has, if you have sharp enough elbows, That you can make yourself into a bit of a mover and shaker. um, And you can change things, you can bend things towards your will. And you don't even have to be Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk could probably have changed things however he liked, wherever he went. You know, it just, he chose LA and started building deep tunnels underneath Hawthorne to be able to sink his little vehicles under and race around.
0: Right, right, and it's like l a is more of an emanation point and less of a place, so to get any kind of ownership of that, you have to force yourself out there, like you said, you have to have these sharp elbows and deal and barter in your in yourself in this way that it doesn't apply to. I feel like a lot of the rest of the country, but I wonder just to like get back on this like um mystical <laughs> strand that we were on. have you ever had any kind of like strange mystical? experiences that happen in L.A.
2: Are you too polite to ask me if I've been in an ayahuasca ceremony? Is that, oh, is no, that, no, no. Because you can ask that. No. I, I don't know how to get I, to Ojai.
0: No, no, I, not, not like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I actually, before we got to talk to you, um, I was just scrolling through Twitter and somebody said like, I never want to hear another podcast where somebody talks about an ayahuasca ceremony. (laughs) No, but I mean, just, I'd say like more like in, in like a weird way. Like, I don't know, for example, I remember once when I was living in LA, I was only living there for like a few months, but I had gone out to a sushi restaurant that was in a strip mall. And I was with somebody that was pretty famous. So they put us in like a separate room, but it wasn't like a nice room. It looked like a living room. The window was covered There was nothing on the walls. We were just basically separated from everybody. And I was like, this is like terrible. This is actually like, I'd rather have people be looking at us than be here. And the conversation just got like really, really strange. And all of a sudden, like the table shook and everybody stopped talking. And we all realized that an earthquake had just happened. And I grew up in Florida. I'm from New York. I'd never been in. I'd never had that happen before it wasn't like super dramatic, but I just felt like really off after that. And I remember the conversation that people were having was about going to Hawaii and like having some sort of electrodes put on their head and it being able to increase create creativity where I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are you talking about? And the night ended and the next day I went to walk my dog up the, one of those canyons and I felt really bad. I felt like I had taken too many SSRIs or some sort of medication that like wasn't prescribed for me. And everybody was like walking up this hill and they had like, you know, they had their arms covered, they had on gloves, they had like the net over the hat. Everybody looked like they were Brando and Island of Dr. Moreau <laughs> and, they, and everybody, nobody was talking. I mean, they were all just like walking up this hill And I just started to feel like a sunroof had like just closed over me and something like really bad was happening. Like I couldn't like really picture like what it was. And I got to the top of the hill with my dog and I was like, man, I'm like, I don't feel good. Like I need to like leave. And it was just the the vibe of it was strange. And when we started to walk back down the, the hill, this black coyote came out in the middle of the trail looked at us and then like walked back into the bushes. And I was kind of freaked out because I had a do- my dog with me and I was like, Oh my God, this is the last thing I need is for like my dog to like get killed by a coyote. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so then I got home and I just got like extremely sick, crazy sick. Like I was like vomiting and I just felt like I had taken like some sort of bad medication and it, I had like this, just this vision, that like the clouds were made out of bones and it was just, it was just very odd. And, and then it just went away and it was just this really strange thing that's never happened to me. I'm not like prone to these kind of <laughs> bouts of illness. And I, re- I remember talking to somebody about it and they were like, oh, that sounds like quake fever. Some people apparently <laughs> get quake <laughs> fever. And I was like, really, is that a thing? And to this day, I don't know if that's like true or not. But it was like, I'd say three or four very weird things that happened to me there that were, I'd say, mystical, but were not like manufactured. Like I didn't go to Ohio to, you know, do ayahuasca yeah. in somebody's living room. Have you ever had anything like that go down?
2: I mean, I think, I think I like the word mystical here, in a way that I really, I really don't like the word spiritual. Mm. I find it to be a little flimsy, and it's a, it's useful when you haven't really thought through what you think or what you feel or what you want to say. So mystical, I feel like, is is nice here. The first place my mind goes is that often when my partner and I are going to a restaurant, we walk in the door and things feel weird. We turn around and it's it's nothing precise. You know, it can be a smell. It can be an attitude. Uh, it can just be something that you're picking up on. And you, But there's a sense that one or both of us know that the next act hour and a half will not be time well spent. So we'll turn around and go somewhere else. There was one time we were in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we walked into a CVS and there was a gentleman in one of the aisles acting really erratically and spooky. And I had this intense premonition that he was going to, he was going to attack people. He was going to set off a bomb. And I said to Rachel, I was like, we got to leave. Like there's, Something bad is going to happen very soon. And so, and she was like, okay. You know, in the same, because I was using the same tone of voice that I'd be like, this restaurant smells. We need to go right now. Um, (laughs) And we turned around. Now, did that man attack anybody to set off a bomb? No. So perhaps my faculties of sense can be a little bit, you know, off. But at the same time, you know, you want to follow your intuition in those moments. And here in LA, sometimes you're driving around And you will go through a half an hour of driving, and it is a very different half an hour from normal. People are behaving differently. Um, People are leaping out into the street or making turns without signaling. Or in general, there's just a sense of wildness. Now, that was certainly exacerbated during lockdown, where you saw a lot of instances, or I saw a lot of instances of cowboy driving. Uh, The idea like, well, fuck it, no one else is out, so I'm going to go 90 Right. And this is on like a two lane road going through, you know, central Los Angeles. Um, but there can be times where you're out and it just feels like I should not be on the road right now because there's something happening. Now, interestingly, we're conducting this interview. I'm staring out the windows at a really intense wind in the trees right now. And we live in a canyon above Hollywood called Beechwood, And Right now, we've been having two days of Santa Ana winds, and these are really the first Santa Anas of the season. The Santa Ana winds are comparable to the Diablo winds of Northern California, or um, there's a name, the Sundowners, that are more central coast than Santa Barbara. But, you know, the winds here have been written about and talked about for ages. Um, and white folks writing about it, such as myself or Joan Didion right now, is, and I, I only throw myself in her category because because I mean, she's amazing, but she wrote quite a bit about uh, Santa Ana's, and I've wrote a tiny amount, but lots of people have. The point is Santa Ana's, Diablos, Sundowners are known for destructive properties. They are harbingers. Um, you will see large ocean swells around the same time. There's a sense that they carry destruction and they exacerbate fires or introduce fire season or make fires, you know, enormous when they might have just been small sort of uh, breakouts, um, and fire people here have really do have fire dreams. Uh, I mean, we're in the season right now. It's just starting, uh, for people in Southern California, obviously, uh, California, Northern California has seen horrendous fires, you know, epic setting fires in the past year and two years, you know, um, and whether, you know, some are only starting to come under control right now, but Southern California this season has been spared mostly, but we are entering the season where things start to get scary. And so you'll, have friends, I have friends who will, you know, we just text about it, um, talking about, oh, fuck, I had this nightmare, especially friends who, you know, our proximity to fires where we live in Los Angeles is mostly around Griffith Park, uh, which has had bad fires, but it's nothing like what people experience, you know, whether you are out in mountains or in the hinterlands or in developments that have been built, perhaps unwisely on top of fire prone areas, or you're out in Malibu or you're in Northern California, again, there's a sense of risk and danger and things on the line. And so I guess when you ask me, have I experienced that kind of sort of like mystical uh, thing, one place my mind goes is because this is, and this is sort of who I am and what I'm attuned to. I, I find sort of sometimes transcendental experiences in nature. I'm pretty open to those and they happen pretty frequently. Uh, it could be in the ocean, it could be in the mountains. But really, like for the research for this book, I spent quite a lot of time going around Skid Row and seeing people um, in that often uh, both in the negative side of things, of really suffering in um, despair and on the positive side of things, really forming community and helping one another, um, despite cliches that people might have I've never hung out, you know, in Skid Row very much. Um, but again, often seen real suffering and often seen people inflicting real suffering upon each other. And then I also, I volunteer these days at a, a Hollywood food coalition and you just see people uh, really working hard, not making much money. You know, I'm one of the volunteers, but there's obviously a lot of paid staff doing these sort of efforts to um, better the lives of other people that live around them. And then I, and I saw that I was volunteering through the pandemic over at Dodger Stadium, which became one of the largest uh, COVID testing areas and then vaccination centers. Um, and again, there was just this sense of extraordinary sort of human effort to help other humans. That's, I think, when you talk about those mystical experiences, there's definitely the fleeting and sort of ones that sort of come on the air and they're just sort of feel like part of living here, whether it's about fires or people driving their cars, or, um, people just acting, uh, weird. But then there's, you know, because like I said, like You're exposed to so much, both hope and despair here that those experiences can feel the same as a mystical experience. Uh, It can feel like the tarot deck is sort of stacked in this certain way, but it's just it's it can be very easy to find things to cry over or to feel extraordinarily joyous about, and that's all over L.A. I think, and it's happening all the time.
0: I totally agree, but you know, it's funny you brought up Skid Row. Because I've i I've definitely spent a little bit of time there. I once hung out with this, this wild photographer named Scott Southern, who's been like taking photos and having sex with prostitutes down there since like the 60s. And he's written a few books about it. He's kind of like a Charles Bukowski type, but a little bit grittier, if you can believe that. But the first time I'd ever gone to Skid Row, as far as like, mystical feeling places I'd never in my life. And I've been to Haiti. I've been to slums in Mumbai. I've definitely like traveled somewhat. I mean, I'm not like some world traveler, but I've seen some things yet. I had never experienced something quite as haunting and as intense as Skid Row. There's just something that is just totally wild and unforgettable about that place.
2: Well, I, I think I totally agree with you. I guess, and I, and I feel that way too, and it's a, it can be extremely shocking. Maybe for me, when we say, that when you talk about the word mystical, the first thing I go to is a sense of awe. And I often find myself awed by moments that are either dangerous or I'm awed by moments that are sort of aesthetically inspiring, or moments where I feel myself at the cutting edge of some sense of life. So that can be, uh, like I said, a moment of danger of people uh, acting out of violence, people like there's like, fuck, we have to get involved right now in what's going on, or don't get involved right now in what's going on, you know, protect yourself, that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. That to me is the same kind of awe that I can feel when I feel reverential about either an image or an experience unfolding in front of me. In both instances, I feel extraordinarily alive. You know, here's an example, like on 9-11, you know, I watched the second tower fall from the roof of a building on like 21st street. And the guy, my coworker, this guy, Chris, standing next to me, first the tears, you know, and he just, he understood the suffering instantly, or that at least, I don't know if he did or not, but that was his reaction. And I didn't, I didn't cry instantly. I was, I was flabbergasted, but almost in a way that was like, just blown away. And I, and I'm totally, I'm not, a, I'm not even ashamed to say it. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to judge myself. Anyone who's listening to this can judge me however they want, but like instantly seeing a building that enormous with all those people collapsing after a fucking plane had struck it before my eyes was awesome and i mean awesome not as in like a positive mm-hmm. experience i don't mean awesome as in like how i respond to a friend in a high score on a video game uh, or someone just did the Amakase course for me and i'm like yeah this is awesome i'm talking about like this is one of the largest most impactful things i will ever experience in my life you know like literally this is like the nuclear fallout happening in front of me uh, and there's, for my own way of existing in the world, there's no way to be muted in that moment in terms of like, I just feel like, holy shit, I am tapped in to life right now. And it's, I, I, I again, it's awful to say that that comes, at, I'm not saying that that comes at the cost of all these people. I don't need enormous death and suffering to feel like. it's. I, I, I find it easy personally and, and discomforting and um, awful to be untethered I dislike being untethered from life. Um, I don't I don't crave it. I don't, I don't I really am someone who uh thrives in connection and wants to be connected as often as possible. I'm very much someone who uh, believes in the moment and believes in humanity and believes in people. Is this what this podcast normally talks about? I feel like I'm really you guys are really having me go here.
0: This is actually fantastic. I mean, generally the the podcast is about atmosphere, aesthetics and escape, but this interview with you is for the next season that we're going to put out in November we want to start talking about the darkening undercurrents of contemporary society. So actually you're doing a, uh, you are falling right into our <laughs> trap
2: beautifully. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Glad to please. I think
1: there's something about that sense of awe. Like if you talk about that, you know, experience of seeing the tower fall, that's both, overwhelms your sense of what it is to be an individual right there like there's no default emotion that I can go to that would encompass this but also makes you feel connected to something larger in the sense that you're like you know what it even is to be an individual is immediately exploded right and you're sort of like I'm a, a witness to history and a vector of history right or like that there's some way in which the supernatural feels natural and the idea that there's a distinction between them quickly disappears
2: yeah, I, I, I hear that. And I, and I find those moments in a certain ways thrilling. Like I, 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 despite being someone who is not religious at all, but had, I, I came from a very religious background. And I remember a moment with my youth group, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade and we were doing a service project in West Virginia. You know, it might've been connected to Habitat for Humanity or something like that. But we, there was also obviously a religious component. And we were staying, I think, in a high school in like these gymnasiums or buildings. At the time, it felt quite large. Maybe it was a college campus. Um, And there was one little exercise that was done where someone had built this is my recollection, and it's, I I don't know how accurate it will be, but I remember what it felt like. You would go into this tent, and it was very low ceiling. You were crouched down, and you're um, thinking about Jesus. And you're thinking about what Jesus sacrificed, and perhaps we were holding hands, perhaps we were trying to imagine what our lives might look like if we were to sort of take on the burdens of humanity. And I remember in that very stifling, hot, humid, dark weirdness, just breaking down, right? Just like weeping. And my girlfriend was in there with me, and I remember we came out and we were hugging and like. At the time, I don't really think I knew what it meant, and I don't know that I meant know what it that it meant much more than I was just sort of a teenage boy who grew up in a pretty stifling culture that wasn't really going to encourage you to be too close to emotional or spiritual experiences if they were, you know, excluding a blue blazer. Um, but I felt that moment quite alive. Now that can have really silly sides to it, right? Like I I'll, here's a story I'll tell myself is that um, I think this was my first year of college. I was 18. Uh, I discovered marijuana for the first time. Um, my RA, the resident advisor of my dorm, uh, I not only never smoked pot before but I'd also never definitely never smoked pot out of a bong. Um, and so I just <laughs> thought you know marijuana was this extraordinary gift that people had been given. Uh, And unfortunately, I decided to pass that honorific onto a book called The Celestine Prophecy. Now, there's no reason, I don't know if you guys have read or heard of The Celestine Prophecy. Hopefully you haven't. Um, But The Celestine Prophecy was sort of like this new age book that was popular at the time. I don't know how I came upon it, but I remember being really stoned and thinking it was the most profound you know, work of spiritual enlightenment that had come along since, you know, any of our major religious deities had put down scripture.
0: What's the gist of it? Uh,
2: the gist of it, if I remember correctly, and again, I'm not proud of anything that I do remember now because the book, I'm pretty sure is a piece of shit, is the idea that we can find a common sense of existence uh, in other life forms such as trees or plants as we might find in ourselves. Now, that's actually on, you know, on the surface of things especially if you, you know been reading any Richard Powers recently, it's not a crazy idea. Um, but I definitely was uh, fomented by me staring at a ficus plant in the campus library and feeling that the two of us were communing. Now, what was made worse is that at the time, this is about 1997, the internet was mostly about message boards and pine, using pine to access your email. And I think I saw on someone's tiny, you know, web page that they had fashioned themselves a critique of the book being stupid. Uh, And I was like, listen, sir, you don't understand how profound this book is. And so naturally, I sent this person a message over the World Wide Web. And that person, you know, published my repost and then also critiqued it. And for years, I'm not someone whose, whose name is like super common, And unfortunately, there was nothing else on the web in those days when you were bouncing around with Netscape Navigator to find, except for my super stone defense of a shitty book. And this is when I met my partner, my wife. This was like the only thing she was able to Google about because Google didn't exist at that point. I realized I'm dating myself, but whatever. Um, So for a while, I was known as someone who defended the Celestine prophecy. But thankfully, the Internet has gotten much bigger since then. And new prophecies have emerged. <laughs> and new prophecies have emerged, and they're mostly in Los Angeles, yeah.
1: Seriously, yeah. I mean, this something jogged in my mind when you were talking about the Santa Anas, you know, in the sense that maybe, also in terms of mysticism, that Los Angeles might be unique or at least very special in the sense that the real and the kind of zeitgeist or world historical has this sense of combining in certain ways so that you can have, you know, the winds are a literal, literal harbinger of fires and bad weather, but are also a harbinger of the possibility of the future. You know, there's something else we are really interested in on, on the show, I think, is like this question of has the 21st century begun yet? You know, are we still in this kind of increasingly grotesque reenactment of the 20th century, or are we you know, did the millennium mean something or is it finally happening now, you know, almost a quarter of the way in? And I kind of feel like from the book, I get the sense that also in terms of the city-state idea that Los Angeles, you know, could be a site where the 21st century might have begun. Do you have that feeling?
2: Yeah, definitely. As much fun as the metaphors can be, I, liked, I, I do want to sort of respect the real terms of people's lives here. You know, there is no middle class anymore here. There is just hidden money and and evident money and everybody else. Um, There is a real hardening of the structures that enable people to um, improve their lives. There is a horrible education system. There is extraordinary environmental collapse happening around us. And I think the reason that sometimes it's easier for me to geolocate the dawning of the 21st century or whatever this new epoch is uh, here rather than other places is because so many of those things that feel like trends elsewhere, whether they're economic or environmental or social, are, like I said, sort of on the front page here, right? Like it's just, it's so easy to read the tea leaves in Los Angeles about what's to come. And what's to come, Though I am an optimist and I feel optimistic, um, I'm also someone who believes that humanity is a virus. You know, I don't. I I I love humans as individuals, and I don't love them as groups. And I and I feel like though we, I also to some degree uh, ascribe to the the Pinker idea that you know civilization is trending toward less violence, more prosperity, better health. I mean, certainly the numbers, you know, prove a lot of that out, less war. I, I do see a lot of tricky, bad stuff around the corner. And so that's why I think when I have these kinds of conversations, I, I want to honor people that are suffering and I want to honor people that are day in, day out doing real shit to make shit better. So LA has all of that. Um, and it's an, an interesting and exciting place to be. in in whichever, you know, part of it you want to play.
1: Yeah. And maybe that's why it's a subject, you know, it's worth discussing in this way because it feels like a kind of laboratory where you can see both ways that it could go, you know, in a sense, I think the extreme inequality that becomes increasingly apparent is connected to the idea of a neo medieval or like a neo feudal city state, right. Or like a moment when private power and, and, corporate power eclipses state power, right? Eclipses like the nation state of basically only the 20th century.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and, I, and I think the arguments out there that would describe Facebook and the Facebook conglomerate as its own nation with its own national powers and now competing on an international stage alongside countries like the United States or China um, it are totally on point, right? I mean, I think we are gradually, uh, moving onto the internet. Um, and I'm not talking about some dude living in a shipping container playing video games. That's a fun book. Um, but this, you know, it, it's way more real, the way that we all do slowly, gradually, willingly move our lives onto the internet, one inch more each day. I mean, I know there's all kinds of motherfuckers in like the you know, public thought and literary worlds that love to bitch and moan about what the internet's doing to us. And then you turn around and you're like, dude, you're on Twitter fucking all day. Like, you're on, like, I've seen you on Facebook. I know what you're up to. Like, don't give me this bullshit, like, where you're going out in the fucking Atlantic and taking $300 to tell the rest of us how awful we are. Those priests of hypocrisy really bother me, uh, just because I don't think they get called out very often in this sort of the public intellectual spheres. But I see us all, we're all going there. We're all happy to go there as much as we bitch and whine about it. Um, and it's just, there's so much that people don't like to look at. And it's so much easier to look at this idea that, well, it's always been getting better, you know, until this point in the United States of America for a segment of us folks. If it's not going to keep going that way for me and my kids, I'd rather stick my head in the sand. That's how I feel about a lot of people. God, this podcast, what the fuck's with this podcast? And you guys, to are like, Getting shit out of me. This is not where I intended this to go. I thought
0: that we were talking about the book. <laughs> we are talking about the book. Yeah. <laughs> These are actually. I'm here like to sell
2: something, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: hopefully, this will help sell some copies because this is definitely the, a lot of the kind of stuff that we thought about while reading it. I mean, perhaps we're seeing it through a lens of fashionable pessimism, but um, there is something. Exciting about the idea that there is this decline of an empire and we are seeing it and we are all experiencing, like, especially, I guess, the fracture of COVID pushing state power down and local power up. Do you think that there's a peaceful way to fragment like this in a way that this possibility of secession could potentially be a good thing and that we would maybe return to the idea of a city state?
2: I mean, for me, it's, and this is probably why. (laughs) I realize I sounded kind of doomy and gloomy for a second there, but hopefully if people were to pick up the book, they'll find it's actually quite bright. And uh, I mean, in terms of luminescence, not necessarily in terms of intellectual value, Um, but its I'm a real optimist and I find LA to be a thrilling place to be and thrilling both like, you know, sometimes a little bit white knuckling and sometimes it's just very, very, you know, like you've got a jolt of electricity going through you to be here. Uh, because gosh, like there's so many interesting people that live here. I can't tell you, that was one of the most rewarding parts of working on this book. It's like all the people I got to interview and meet who are so smart and so interesting and have such like weird interests and hobbies and lives. Um, so in terms of the city state, the idea of secession, I have no idea if California is going to secede you know, and declare war on the state of Texas or vice versa, or Los Angeles is suddenly going to break away from the tech barons of San Francisco and we can all fight about income tax. Like, I don't, I have no idea. You know, my prognostication for me, the, the city state makes so much sense as a metaphor for Los Angeles. I almost don't need it to be accurate as a way to pin down Los Angeles um, as a, you know, like, oh, it's definitely a city-state. I mean, it's a city-state, sure, but it's also still a city in California in the country of the United States. Um, I don't see us having big enough problems yet that the the United States is going to... It would take a lot for the United States to become untethered. At the same time, the concept of a city-state, and for any listeners who this is, you know, sort of a new uh, term for them, the idea of a city-state historically um, has been around for a long time. It's probably sort of the oldest organizing principle of humanity in terms of when people come together who may not share language or even perhaps don't share common interests, but do gather in a place that is sovereign, that is uh, reliant on similar natural resources, whether it is a body of water or a certain amount of land. You know, we're going back as far as what really the dawn of of civilization or recorded history. You know, you can go back to Athens, you can be you know, as recent as Singapore, uh, the Italian nation states, uh, city states, excuse me. Um, but it's this organizing principle that where it's something more than a city. Uh, and slightly less than an enormous country. And it was often how the world was divvied up for a long time, you know, practically before about 400 years ago when countries suddenly became the way to organize the globe. Um, but to me, L.A. is so unique, so diverse, so vast, so unending, so um, when you live here, there's just a sense of like, there's just an air that you breathe that is LA. Uh, In that sense, the city state makes most sense to me versus any other concept I've run into to describe LA, to understand LA. That isn't necessary to say that Los Angeles is a city state and San Francisco isn't. I mean, I would argue that. But my point is like, it's just a way of grasping LA, whether or not the United States is gonna devolve into a bunch of uh, warring factions. On that note, I have no idea. And maybe
1: it doesn't need war. I mean, maybe it already is in that state. I mean, maybe that's the more optimistic read on it is things will just uh, culturally localize and like people can, you know, go where they feel most at home. I mean, maybe that's too optimistic, but, but I think there's some possibility of that, right?
2: Well, certainly there's like political swerve going that way, you know? The electoral college obviously is not a system that makes any sense these days, but I don't know that the popular vote makes any sense If you are living in Idaho or Wyoming and want to be, you know, have your lives and policies dictated to you by people who live in New York or Los Angeles. um, We have, you know, a very broken system um, and it plays out on cable news every day. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's certainly big cities have magnetism, right? But so do rural places. Um, And if big cities can't prove out as places where what you desire will be found there, you know, then Big cities are going to be less attractive. Uh, you know, there's a study that came out this past week that people with um, who don't have bachelor's degrees are now making more money than people who have bachelor's degrees. You know, suddenly college, university education on a very sort of functional, uh, income, job, craft-oriented level, which to me is not the reason that one would go to you know college in the first place. But those things apparently, if they no longer prove out, then what's the point? You know, what's the point of taking on all that debt? What's the point of moving to the big city if you're not going to get where your money's worth, as it were? Um, yeah, so people are are getting drawn into all kinds of things right now. That, that was a very uninteresting comment for me. Please cut that. That had nothing. There was no value there.
1: No, I think that's a very fascinating you know, idea of, like, on the one hand, there's this vector of, like, everything becoming increasingly intangible and digital and us moving onto the internet. But I think the fact of, you know, not having a bachelor degree leading to potentially higher income in a way indicates the opposite, right? That like, we like to pretend that the physical world doesn't exist, right? And that we don't imagine that we need, you know, carpenters and plumbers and, and like all kinds of people who do physical things, but in fact we do And like the economy would prove that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you can have, I mean, I think, I don't remember who was making this point. It might've been Ross do that, but you can, you know, live in Dallas and have an extermination business. And not have an undergraduate degree and be making as much money or more money than a junior engineer um, at Google, right? Who, you know, had to go through quite a bit more education to get there. Now, if that's, again, this is just, you know, dollars and cents measurements of the values of, you know, what you want out of life. Um, And I certainly I'm someone who really cuts against the veneration of wealth and money is some sort of, you know, measurement of value or happiness or suffering for that matter um, i find wealth to be pretty worthless um but that's just me and i and I, that's a pretty fucking privileged thing to say jesus i, I think i just canceled myself uh, <laughs> uh, <yeah>. it <laughs> happened here folks <laughs> the last <laughs> the last interview <laughs> listen i and i say that i'm I, i'm somebody who's not rich I'm not poor. uh and i and i you know live in a in a small apartment and enjoy the heck out of it. Cause I get to like go out and you know play tennis three days a week. Uh, but that's getting into a different obsession. Uh, it has nothing to do with.
1: You know, it's like money as it's like that heuristic curve or, you know, it's like money is good insofar as it frees you from suffering and becomes bad as soon as it begins to cause a new form of suffering, which is always at a lower point than what people tend to imagine.
2: There is the, you know, that came out, the social science came out a couple of years ago that like, you just need to get to that $70,000 mark you know, right. that's apparently what it takes to be, you know, comfortable enough to, and so, um, oh God, I don't want to talk about the same way. This is, this is now feeling bad. Yeah, <laughs> see,
1: here's a, here's an aesthetic question to, to pivot away and, and we can start wrapping up, but, you know, so we didn't really get to it much and we don't have to go too deep into it, but we had thought before about, uh, Los Angeles plays itself that, you know, that great documentary and this idea of like endless fixation. On its own destruction, right? Or this kind of like obsession that Hollywood has with destroying the city of Los Angeles over and over. But but in terms of aesthetics, you know, what do you think are two possible visions for the 21st century of LA? Like, what's the kind of best case and worst case possibility? You know, either through a a like political or aestheticized lens.
2: I mean, first of all, what a wonderful movie, Los Angeles plays itself. I mean, that's a personal favorite, even though it's weird and it's too long and it's uh, it's meandering like in all the best possible ways. It's a real shaggy dog of a it documentary. Uh, and I don't know that everyone has watched it from start to finish. Um, I've only watched it from start to finish once. and the other time I saw it in the theater, I think I made it two-thirds of the way through and I was just like, I need to get a drink. Um, but I mean <laughs> it's really it's an extraordinary document. For anyone who doesn't know, this is a documentary um, that was made, I think it came out like 2004 or 2005. Is that right? Do you guys know that off the top of your head? I think
1: so, right? It was made by Tom Anderson, who is one of Cal Arts' big film film studies guys.
2: And I think this this might be publishing scuttlebutt, but I have a feeling there's I think there's a book in the works um, that will come out that is sort of based on the documentary or is the documentary I'm not really sure. Um, in any case, yeah, it's Paul, uh excuse me Tommy Anderson, um, and it's sort of talk. It's a documentary about the ways that Los Angeles has been depicted in movies and television, and I guess in in advertising also. But I guess two visions for what Los Angeles looks like as an aesthetic. Hmm. I think L.A. will keep giving us the natural side of things. I think L.A. will offer, however it's depicted, evidence of mayhem and fire and earthquake and uh, the the seas are boiling in the streets. I I think it's irresistible. And I think, you know, whether it is the film director's who want to put the rock in a helicopter, or it's you know people that just have an idea of what Californians deserve, you know, after all their other preaching at us from their Malibu homesteads. Um, I think that image is going to continue because it's both cliche and you know legit. I think what I would like to see as a way of Los Angeles being projected into the years to come is to see the diversity of los angeles more and more respected and more and more put on paper and in celluloid and on netflix um because i think one of the benefits of getting to spend i spent like probably like two and a half or three years on this book you know and there was quite a bit of driving around and quite a bit of exploring and there was just so many pieces of life here that don't get put Into the public consciousness that are so much more novel and interesting than the cliches that do get tossed around. So, the more and more that I can see that diversity in front of me, just from the value of having newness uh, in front of people, because that's what I find, you know, that's what makes life so fucking awesome and what makes tomorrow worth getting up for. is like, Oh my God, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to see something new, blah, blah, blah. That's what for me, I find to be really, really valuable in LA. So let me just do a, a quick plug here. There's a guy called Sam Sweet. I want to say, this is not a plug. I've only met him once, literally for our interview. But he writes this fabulous set of um, booklets that he self-publishes called All Night Menu. I think they're called. You can order them off his website. I think if you Google Sam Sweet All Night Menu, you'll find them. He just had a new version, a new edition come out. So highly recommend buying it before he sells out because he's just printing them himself. But uh, I interviewed him. And his, the idea of his books are that he takes a single address around L.A. and then traces back what makes that address special. And each volume is a compendium of like 11 addresses that are just Extraordinary for different reasons. Um, And he writes these sort of nonfiction, deeply researched short stories about each address. And he made the point to me in our interview, we're sitting there having like quesadillas and black coffee in this little like diner over on in East LA. And he was like, LA doesn't care about you if you don't make an effort to get to know LA. But when you start to extend yourself, LA gives back like crazy. And I just love this idea because it was really what was coming out of my research that it's very easy to live here and you don't see any of it and don't experience any of it and you want to leave as soon as possible because it just treated you like nothing, like it just didn't even you know wink at you once. Um, and yeah, like because all people, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, I think this is like the only thing I know to be true of like all people is that everyone wants to be asked to the prom, right? Like everyone wants to be wanted. Uh, and LA doesn't want you, but like then you start to like put yourself out a little bit, and it just gives back. And so hopefully that munificence is an aesthetic that shows up in the future.
0: Rosecrans, I think that's like a beautiful way to end this conversation. I truly hope that people read everything now. And I also hope that you weren't uh, too alienated by the uh, weirdness of us and our questions. But I think uh, we got like a lot of really compelling information. And and you've actually made me think of LA in even more new ways than I have after reading your book. So I really want to thank you for that.
2: Um, My pleasure. Listen, I will take any conversation these days that is about real shit and goes in weird directions. I have no time for the bullshit that you know we used to talk about before pandemic, and I didn't then, and I don't now. I mean, yeah, L.A. is a deaf republic, right? Like it is, it is not hearing anything that any of us are saying. So therefore, it's a wonderful place to sit around a campfire and talk all kinds of weird crap until three in the morning. So. The next time you guys are out here, I don't promise ayahuasca. I've never done it. I don't want to wear a diaper, but we could have some tequila and get into the depths of the purple nastiness. And I'm, I'm happy to
0: go there. Oh, we... And... <laughs> yeah, we will take you up on that and you might regret it. But uh, that is exactly the realm we love to exist in.